Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. One of the first things you might do as an investigator is to look at people who live within a mile or two radius of a crime scene. In 1984, Bernice Cordemanche and Ellen Freed disappeared from or near Leo's one-stop market. This was on Main Street in Claremont, New Hampshire. So I started by pulling records of residents within a mile of Leo's. And one name glared up at me from an online listing. Lawrence Moulton. You might just recognize this name too. This man inserted himself and his brother into one of the most puzzling and mysterious missing persons cases in New Hampshire. On February 9th, 2004, Maura Murray disappeared after crashing her car on a hairpin turn in the White Mountains. Maura has never been found. You are listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Mill. This is episode 10. Dark Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for a subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. Okay, so quick origin story here. This podcast is a crawlspace media show, the founders of which are Tim Polari and Lance Reinsterna. Tim and Lance began the podcast Missing Maura Murray when serialized podcasts were in their infancy. Tim and Lance are also fierce advocates for Maura's case. Personally, I joined crawlspace media in part because of my interest in Maura's case. She's always in the back of my mind. Where was she headed when she crashed her car? Where is she now? What happened to her? Mara's case is like a prism, refracting facts and theories into a bewildering array of possibilities. It's also been mired in controversy, and I think you'll find today's episode no less controversial. Nonetheless, I believe it's a worthwhile avenue of inquiry. 
I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not necessarily saying Mora's case is connected to the Valley murders, but that her case may yield a common thread. But why are we talking about Mora Murray? First, allow me to introduce you to someone. She's a former military officer, a current government defense contractor, and a really cool person. Yes, uh, my name is Julie Murray. I'm the older sister of Mara Murray, who is a missing person. She's been missing since February 9th, 2004, out of New Hampshire. You're so professional, Julie. <laughs> it just rattles off. <laughs> I know. I need to stop being so serious when I do these things, but that's just who I am. Well, Mara was two and a half years younger than me, my younger sister. Uh, we grew up from a, a pretty large family. Um, we have five, my parents had five kids, so money was tight. And the town that we grew up with was called Hanson, Massachusetts. And it's a tiny little town. When we grew up, we had one Dunkin' Donuts, which kind of, you know, in, in New England, that's how you can judge how big a city is by the number of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> so we had one. Um, so that will tell the New Englanders a lot. And we had one stoplight. So nothing to do. So what we did, what Mara and I did, is put our, our effort into schoolwork and athletics. And that's what we did. And we loved it. And my father was a marathon runner. He ran nine Boston marathons. And so we saw him doing his training runs. And eventually we picked up running. And Mara and I, you know, we just loved it. It was our, just our passion. And um, we started to get good. We started to win races. Mara was, she was a better runner than I was. Um, she, really? yeah, you, you heard it. You heard it from me. <laughs> <laughs> but she could beat me, but she didn't. She, she didn't. She didn't beat me. I think because she wanted to let me win. Um, but we'll never know. Um, so, you know, we competed with each other fiercely, but we were also each other's number one fans. We'll definitely get into the details of Morris' disappearance and its connection to the Connecticut River Valley murders. But first, I want to know more about Mora. I asked Julie several silly questions. I want to know, like, what was her handwriting like? Was it messy or, like, really neat? It was very messy. Um, and she had, she definitely had doctor handwriting. And I, I do have a lot of notes that she used to write me because when I went to college, she would write me little notes and send me little care packages. Another example of what little sister does that? Nobody, usually it's the parent or the grandparent, but no, in my case, it was my little sister writing me, you know, these little notes. But she'd have a full page to write on, but she'd write sideways and in circles and just, just to mess around and, and just, you know, talk smack and call me names. And that was our love language, you know, just talking smack. And that was her telling me she loved me and missed me and her chicken scratch handwriting. Uh, it was more funny. Oh, she was so funny. So funny. And she was so quick witted. So it takes me a while to process and think. I, I'm kind of a slow thinker, but not Mara. She could come back with something really witty comebacks all the time. And 
She would always be making fun of our mother and my father, especially because, you know, that's what you do as, as kids. But she, yeah, she made everybody laugh. I want to know, I know these seem like really random questions, but it's like... No, I love these <laughs> questions. Nobody asks these questions. <laughs> I want to know what kind of music she was into. Um, Mara's taste in music was old school, well beyond her years. Oh, she she would listen to Al Green. She would listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, um, oh, just just all the old the old school type of kind of bluesy, jazzy type of music. Um, but the number one thing that I like to talk about Mara or describe Mara as is how humble she was. So here you have this amazingly talented athlete student, yet she's so humble and kind. And was she perfect? No, not by any means. She was human. And, you know, she was beautiful. And, you know, I just miss her so much. As of this recording, Mora has been missing for 19 years. How did this happen? How did this sweet, funny, competent young woman disappear? Julie went to West Point and later commissioned as an officer in the United States Army. Mora wanted to follow in her big sister's footsteps, but once she was at West Point, she found out that military life wasn't necessarily for her. So she transferred to the University of Massachusetts and got accepted into their prestigious nursing program. And I'll let Julie take over from here. Fast forward to Monday, Monday night, February 9th. Um, at 3.32 a.m., Mara submits her nursing school homework assignment, which was to look up maternity terms. So she, she emails that off at three something in the morning. And I will note that Mara was a night owl. So being up that late, <laughs> um, it wasn't abnormal. Um, and then she starts to do some things that look like she's hatching a hasty plan to get away. So she looks up directions to Burlington and New Hampshire. And then she presumably gets some sleep and then later on, on the day she disappeared, early afternoon, she continues to do some internet searches, um, looking at now condos so and reservations. So the two things that she did was she called the condo owner up in Bartlett, New Hampshire, which is an area my family is very familiar with. We had stayed at that condo complex before, um, but when she calls the condo owner, she doesn't end up booking a reservation. She then calls 1-800-GO-STOW in Stowe, Vermont, which is a um, popular ski resort. Uh, but when she calls this information line, they just give ski conditions and things like that, weather conditions. So she doesn't end up making a reservation. Then she emails her professors and says that there was a death in the family and there was no death in the family. And then she plays phone tag with her boyfriend. She sends the boyfriend um, an email saying she doesn't feel like much of talking to anyone, but she loves him. And then she returns some borrowed clothes to a fellow nursing student. And then she goes to an ATM and withdraws $280, just shy of 
$20 left in her bank account. Then she goes to a liquor store and she purchases $40 worth of liquor. Also at the liquor store, she recycles 79 cans for $3.95. And that's on the receipt that was found in her abandoned car. So we think that she left UMass sometime between 4 and 4.30. And she heads north in the 1996 Black Saturn that was running on three cylinders with black smoke blowing out that my dad told her, do not drive this car. Destination unknown, no reservations in place. Doesn't tell anyone. Morrow would have been traveling up Interstate 91, the alleged thoroughfare of the earlier murders in the 80s. She most likely got off exit 17 near Wells River, Vermont, a stone's throw from the Connecticut River and the New Hampshire border. If Mora got off at this exit, she would have stopped at P and H truck stop for gas. By the time she stopped, night had fallen. Investigators suspect she stopped for gas shortly before she crashed, as her car was found with a nearly full tank. Then, for some unknown reason, Mora, whoever was driving her car, doesn't get back on I-91, but travels about 10 miles east toward Woodsville or North Haverhill, New Hampshire. Then she crashed her car on an icy bend of Route 112, Wild Amanusac Road. At 7.30 p.m., there was a neighbor up in Woodsville, New Hampshire, which is a small rural town. Um, The neighbor hears a a loud thud outside her kitchen window. She goes, looks out, she sees a black sedan in the eastbound lane facing westbound. So the car was on the wrong side of the road facing the wrong direction. She calls 911. This is at 7.27 p.m. Then her neighbor, a bus driver, Butch Atwood, comes up. He stops and talks to the driver, who we have to assume is Mara because it's her car and she's missing, and offers her assistance. And Mara declines, saying that she had already called AAA. He knew that could not be true because there's no cell phone service in the area even today. So he goes back to his house um, just a, a short distance from where the car was found and calls 911. He places a second 911 call at 742. And then at 746, the first responding officer arrives on scene to find a locked and abandoned black Saturn. Mars nowhere to be found and has never been seen again. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. So Mara went missing, and very quickly we started to hear these fragmented tales um, and rumors and things people were thinking who lived in the area, the locals. And they would come up and tell us. Um, they, they would know where to find us. And we kept hearing these same names over and over and over again, very, very early on, to the point where we could not ignore this information that was being provided to us. And one of those names was a man named Claude Moulton. Claude Moulton is Lawrence, or Larry Moulton's brother, 
and they are the reason we're talking about Mora in the context of the Connecticut River Valley murders. Julie goes on. He's a local to the area, um, and he lived a mile down the road back in the Mountain Lakes uh, area, um, which was a mile from where Mora's car was found. And like I said, most of what we heard was just sort of, you know, people talking about his reputation around town and that he was into and dating um, a younger woman and just unsavory type of stuff about him. Um, And so he kind of popped up on the radar pretty early. And um, it just was repeated so many times. So one day after a search on a weekend in February in 2005, a year after Mara disappeared, my dad gets a call from a man named Larry Moulton, who is Claude Moulton's brother. And Larry tells my dad, I have something to give you. I'd like to meet with you. And it involves your missing daughter. And my dad is like, absolutely, of course, meet me right now. So they connected and my dad went to Larry's house which was not far. Do you recall if that was in Claremont or if it was elsewhere? I know it was Gold Street. Larry Moulton, Claude's older brother, lived in his mother's house on Gold Street in Claremont, New Hampshire. This house was less than half a mile from Leo's one-stop market. As we've established, Leo's is where Ellen Freed made her last phone call in 1984 before she was murdered. We're also pretty sure that Bernice Courdemanche walked by Leo's Market on her way to hitchhike on the corner of North Street and Washington before she, too, was murdered. Larry probably didn't live on Gold Street at the time of Ellen and Bernice's disappearance, but his mother did. So my dad goes to meet um, Larry at his house and his wife is there, Larry's wife. And Larry tells my dad directly, I think that my brother has something to do with your daughter's disappearance. I need to give you this knife. So Larry said that he retrieved this knife from Claude's glove box um, as evidence and implicating Claude in having something to do with Morris' disappearance. So this is shocking, right? You know, we, we had been searching for a year and we just hear all these fragmented tales, but this was something tangible that, that we had. And the knife had some rusting. Um, it's become known as the bloody knife um, because it did have some discoloration on it. So my dad thanks him and says, you know, what else do you have? And, and he, you know, Larry was adamant that Claude had something to do with it. So my dad takes this bloody knife and he drives from Claremont to Concord, New Hampshire at the state police headquarters. And this is on a Sunday. And he comes in and he says, I have evidence here. I need to provide it to whoever's in charge here. (laughs) And my dad was turned away. They said, we cannot take this into evidence. So that blew my dad's mind. and the only thing that he could think of doing was mailing it, you know, to New Hampshire State Police headquarters at the very building that he was 
physically at um, and get it, you know, tracking to make sure that they got it. And so we, he mailed it off to them and he got the tracking information and they signed for it. And we never heard anything about it. That blows my mind too. I mean, is there, has that never happened in the history of like law enforcement that somebody has a piece of evidence that they need to turn over to police? Like there's no protocol. I mean, there's gotta be protocol, but you know, how frustrating for my dad. Here he is, you know, probably speed racing down to Concord saying, you know, I've got this bloody knife and this brother implicated this guy who's I've heard rumors about for a whole year and you're not going to take it. It just was deflating to say the least. And, you know, you get your hopes up so much. Like when we first got that tangible piece of evidence, a knife, you know, our, we were hopeful, like we got it. This is it. And then they just turned us away. Nah, come back. You know, we can't take it. The relationship with hope in a missing person case is um, you can do you can do full studies on it because it's just this roller coaster of you're up, you're down. You don't want to get too high. You don't get too low. You just got to be even keel. And because we, we've had all these situations like the bloody knife where we think we got it and we get our hopes up and then they just come crashing down and we never hear about it. It's like it went into a black hole. Did they test it? I don't know. What'd they do with it? I don't know. Are they going to test it? Why? I don't know. And it's just the whole laundry list of possibilities of what could have been. Did they lose it? I don't know. Is there any more information? Like, did they test the knife? Did they say it's not a value? Did they say it's not involved? Like, Well, for since we turned the bloody knife in for over a decade, whenever we would ask... What's the status of the bloody knife? The cookie cutter answer that we got, as we get with everything, is we looked into it. And that just doesn't work. That doesn't work for a a desperate family like mine. That is what you're going to tell us. You know, I sat down for my first formal interview with law enforcement three years ago. Yeah. First, I was never formally interviewed. And I was closest to Mara. Grew up with Mara, had communicated her with her days before she disappeared, but nobody thought it would be a good idea to ask me any questions. And every time, either my dad or when I was up there because I was in the army, I, I had limited time to be up there, you know, trying to set up a meeting was difficult. Um, and so there was never any communication. And so, you know, I sat down for this interview and I just spilled all, I just, I just cried on the table and just told the whole story for like three hours saying, you know, here's everything you need to know about Mara. And it was, it was then where we, we started to build a new relationship and be more collaborative. And so in my last meeting with the new detective, uh, one of my questions was, could you please tell me about the bloody knife? Was it tested? And his response was, yes, it was tested. So thank you. How hard was that? You know, you know, I don't know what the results of the test were. You know, that would be too much to ask. Um, But I do. I do know that it was it was tested. So 
It's kind of unhelpful to point out, but I don't want it to be lost, that we don't know if the state police tested this knife for any other human DNA profile. It may have been excluded in Mora's case, but what about other murders? It turns out that the Moultons have deep ties to the Claremont area, the locus of these serial murders. And let's get nerdy for a second. In geometry, a locus is defined as a set of all points. And the deeper I looked, the more points kept appearing. I threw a line out during my chance conversation with Eileen, the nurse who worked with Ellen Freed at Valley Regional Hospital. And she bit. And then I have one other strange question for you. Have you sure. have you ever heard of the Moulton family? There was uh, two sons by the name of Larry and Claude. Oh, Moulton? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of Moultons around here. Are there really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not an uncommon name in this area. And do you know if they have any kind of reputation in the community? Well, I I can say when you hear the name, it it brings to mind kind of a, a rough crowd. <laughs> um, I think they can be a little rowdy at times. So there's still Moultons in Claremont. Oh, yeah. Though not damning by any means. Apparently, the Moultons had a reputation in the valley as being a trouble-prone family. The brothers got into bar fights. Larry started using drugs. As members of the Moulton family have told me, quote, Why the Moulton name seems to always pop up, I don't know. Don't you read the forums of what people say about us? End quote. Yes. Yes, I certainly did. And it's not pretty. But anyway, I pulled up a list of addresses where Larry and Claude lived and began to piece together their stories. The brothers were born to Stanley and Betty Moulton. They had another brother, Corey, who tragically died in 1980 after a police chase that ended in a fatal crash. Claude left Claremont as an adolescent to go live with his mother in Bradford, Vermont. Larry, however, stayed behind in Claremont and lived out his life there. We can especially place Larry in Claremont in June of 1985, the month between the murders of Bernice Cordemanche and Ellen Freed, because he was charged with criminal threatening against a local woman named Suzanne Collins. New Hampshire law defines criminal threatening as making, quote, claims that they're gonna hurt someone or otherwise come into contact with them physically. In other words, Larry threatened to kill Suzanne. He was later acquitted of this charge, and unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a hold of Suzanne to tell me what this incident was about. Then on June 24th of 1986, Claude Moulton was charged with lewd and lascivious conduct at Bridgewater Diner in Woodstock, Vermont, and this is about 36 minutes north of Claremont. And just to note, 1986 was the year Linda Moore was killed in Saxton's River, Vermont so he can place Claude at least within an hour radius of Linda Moore's murder. That one's admittedly kind of flimsy. But then I found another address for Larry that kind of blew my mind. At one point, Larry lived at 53 Chestnut Street in Claremont. Ellen Freed lived at 42 Chestnut Street. 
Larry's apartment was literally across the street from Ellen Freed. And then, recall what we learned about where Eva Morse was headed the day she disappeared. She was going to her ex-girlfriend Deborah's house. Well, get this. Deborah lived at none other than 53 Chestnut Street, the same building Larry Moulton lived in, and the same building that was across the street from Ellen Freed. Now, I'm well aware that you could just as easily point to Eva's ex, Deborah, as having lived in close proximity to both victims. Another issue is that I can't determine exactly what year Larry lived at 53 Chestnut Street. So it may all be a big coincidence, or the timelines might not overlap. Larry also worked as a machinist and potentially a crane operator at Tanksis Incorporated, a factory that was across the street from Leo's one-stop market. Bernice would have walked right past his place of work, and Ellen was standing right across from it. And then later on, Larry was charged with a DUI in Claremont, only a month after Jane's attack in 1988. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. I wanted to know more about Larry's interaction with Maura's father, Fred. So I asked Julie, did he talk to you at all about like what his impressions were from that meeting? I asked my dad. We know that Larry eventually died of cancer. And so one of the things that I asked my dad was, did he seem sick? And my dad said, no, he's, he didn't seem sick. He just seemed beat down by life, kind of looked a little bit older than um, his age, kind of a weathered look to him, um, kind of thin. Uh, so that's kind of how my dad described Larry. He was going on and on about how he was adamant about it was his brother that was involved and, you know, he had nothing to do with it. And Larry's wife was also there, uh, Muriel. I think that's how you say it. Um, and she was agreeing right along with everything Larry said. And so they were both, um, it wasn't a very long interaction, um, but they were both telling the same story to my dad. Do you recall what Larry's story was in terms of like how he came to procure this knife? Um, or didn't he have Claude's car or something? Yeah. So that's another piece to this whole thing. There's a, there's talk of a fight over a car. So at one point, I believe Claude gave Larry this car. And then Claude asked for it back, and that caused an uproar, and they had this big blowout fight. And that kind of impacted their relationship as brothers. But what Larry told my dad was he, Larry went into Claude's glove box and retrieved the, the knife. He wasn't specific on, you know, what happened or you know, where or when, none of the specifics of how 
his allegation against his brother happened in terms of, you know, hurting, harming Mara. It was just, this is what you need. Here it is. I got it from the glove box. Right. So he didn't really talk about the circumstances that led Claude to give his brother his car. And then do you know how much time passed after he uh, wanted the car back? I don't. I'm not. I'm not too um, familiar with the exact timeline of the car. I've heard that, you know, there's lots of stories about the car. You know, people have said that the car was crushed two weeks after Mara disappeared. But I, I don't believe that's true. I believe the car was given to Larry. And then at some point, the car was crushed. And like Larry had it crushed, potentially. That's what it sounds like. Okay. Something just doesn't add up here. People have said that Larry had a vendetta against his brother. A person close to the family told me there was a long-standing animosity between the brothers. And that's why Larry accused his brother of murdering Mora. But if the fact is that Larry had Claude's car, Claude had to trust him enough to give up his vehicle, especially if it was used in the commission of a crime. Why would Larry suddenly betray Claude? We do know that Larry later died of cancer. But that wasn't until two years after he gave Fred Murray the quote-unquote bloody knife. So it wasn't necessarily a deathbed confession, as some have characterized it. It's possible he just received his diagnosis and was feeling like he had a guilty conscience. For what, though? His brother's actions? Or his own? Claude lived in, an, or he rented an A-frame, which was, as I mentioned before, a mile from where Morris' car was found right there in Woodsville. And he lived there with his young girlfriend at the time. After Mara disappeared, Claude's ex-wife came by to the A-frame and she noticed that the the bottom level of the A-frame green carpet was ripped out. And so she thought that was odd. So she asked Claude, you know, or asked her daughters, what's up with the carpet? Why is the carpet ripped out? And the answer that they got was that that they had a flood. Um, There was some sort of flooding in uh, February. Um, (laughs) So that was one of the first um, suspicious things we heard. Then shortly after Morris' disappearance, the girlfriend of Claude moved. They broke up and moved, and then she got a restraining order against him for something. And Claude moved out of the A-frame that he was renting. So the A-frame sat vacant for a number of years. And it wasn't until 2006 time frame where the New Hampshire League of Investigators, who were a group of retired law enforcement officers, and one of the places that they wanted to look at was the A-frame. So they got permission from the landowner to go in with cadaver dogs. So cadaver dogs go in and the cadaver dog alerts on a closet downstairs of the A-frame. Years after Claude left the A-frame house, another couple moved in and heard about Morris' disappearance. So he decides to um, put luminol in the downstairs closet where the cadaver dog had alerted in the closet is just glowing. 
All of these measures to procure evidence from the A-frame were not performed by the New Hampshire State Police, and as far as we know, for reasons to do with chain of custody or whatever, the State Police has never officially processed the A-frame as a crime scene. But what about Claude's alibi for the evening Mora disappeared? He claims he was out of state, on a trucking route. Yeah, well, it's funny because he said he doesn't remember the night or the time, but he knows exactly where he was in Northern Mass at the date and the time of the disappearance. Are you able to talk about the party at all? Is that, like, public? I have never talked about it. I guess I could talk about it, but I don't want to use his name. But yeah, I'll talk about it. The other layer to this is that um, Claude's ex-wife, Teresa, who has been very helpful informed us that there was a birthday party on the night my sister disappeared for somebody that lived in the Mountain Lakes complex. And it was a friend of both Claude and uh, it seemed like Teresa, although they were separated at the time. But the two daughters were close to this man, so much so that they got him a gift for his birthday. And Teresa remembers making sure to take the daughters over to Claude so that she could give the gifts so that Claude could give them to this man's birthday because there was some party. So that is in direct conflict with Claude's story saying he was not in town when here we have the ex-wife saying not only was he in town, my kids have birthday gifts for the party he went to the, that night in town. So, and that's not a date that you might confuse either if it's someone's birthday. No, I mean, I've got the records. It, there was, it was his birthday, February 9th. It is his birthday, February 9th. Do you happen to know if Claude's ever been interviewed? I've interviewed him. I've done a lot of interviews over the years, and I was absolutely terrified to do this because it was a cold call. Um, we got his address. We learned, when I say we, I'm talking about my dad and I, we learned that his health was failing. He was diagnosed with, I think it was cancer. I think it is cancer. So we said, now's the time, we need to go talk to Claude. So we found his address, we drive over to the residence. Um, my hands were shaking. And I remember right before we got out of the car, I actually, I was, I was stalling, I was trying to stall. And so I'm fumbling for my pen, you know, trying to act like I got my stuff together and I'm totally freaking out, but I don't want my dad to, you know, see that, but he didn't, he, he didn't see anything. By the time I went to open the door, he was halfway up the driveway, just a man on a mission. And I'm like, oh my God. So I follow behind my, I think it was 78 at the time, my 78 year old dad, and he is just fearless. And I'm, you know, walking behind him like a scared little puppy. And that's what it felt like. And he knocks on the door and uh, Claude's daughter answered. Um, the daughter that he has with the girlfriend that he was living in the A-frame with at the time, Sky. So my dad says, uh, she said, can I help you? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's it's awkward to just go up to someone's house and knock on the door and, you know, 
So I was super nervous, just kind of standing behind my dad. And usually, you know, that's uncharacteristic of me. Usually I'm the one leading the way, like, Dad, we're going to do this and this is what we're going to do. Nope. My dad was just right there. So he says, is Claude there? And she said, may I ask, you know, what this is about? And he said, I'm Fred Murray. And so she yells up the stairs and said, Dad, um, someone's here to see you. And he yells down, and I'll never forget it, who? And she says, Fred Murray. And then there was this pause. And then I was like, I knew he wasn't going to talk to us. And then he says, send him up. Yeah. So now my heart's pounding out of my chest. I'm like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> I've heard all these stories about this guy. So we go up and we're sitting right across from him at the kitchen table. He was on oxygen. And, uh, you know, we we started asking him questions. And, um, you know, he said that he was wait. He was. Um, surprised it took us that long to come because this was only a few years ago that we um, we went and talked to him for the first time and he said the main thing he said was he claims he wasn't in the area the night of the disappearance so he worked as a trucker so he said he was probably most likely down in um, northern Massachusetts at the time of the disappearance and he said it's all in logs and something about you, we can go look at the logs or something. He didn't provide the logs, but he said that he alluded to the fact that there's logs that essentially prove that he was out of town. Okay, but you've never seen any kind of uh, proof or evidence that he was away? No. So he, that was that was kind of his main um, point that he wanted to get across. He said it multiple times, you know, that I couldn't, there's no way I could have done this Um you know, and so we continued to ask him. My dad was kind of leading the line of questioning, and I would pop in for clarification here and there. Um, my dad did ask him what, he, you know, what he has heard, what he, who he thinks was involved, and he kind of just danced around that answer, and um, it was kind of a non-answer. Really, he didn't implicate anybody else. Nope. You know, and then we said, my dad continued to, to tell him, you know, you, there's human blood in the closet of the place you used to rent. And he claimed to not have any knowledge of it. What closet? And I had to explain to him, okay, you know, when you walk in your front door, you go straight, it's on to the left, it's under the stairs. And he's like, oh yeah, I have I have no idea why there, were, there, there shouldn't be human blood there. <laughs> so he, he couldn't give us an answer as to why you just kind of danced around it as well. You know, I can't imagine that after all this time, he hasn't heard the rumor or not the rumor, the fact that there was human blood in a closet where he lived of a home that he lived. Yeah. And there's a missing woman a mile down the street. Then we said, you know, and then we have your brother coming to us. And he specifically said, did my brother really call you? He's asking my dad that my dad said, yeah. So it's almost as if he was kind of in disbelief still that many years later that his brother did, in fact, actually call my dad and say, I I think Claude did this. Did he have anything to say about like some kind of feud 
between the two of them? Like The one thing that he did say was that his brother was arrested shortly thereafter after, after he gave my dad the knife for some sort of drug charge. Sort of alluding to the fact that it was all because of drugs. Which, you know, we've heard for years. We've heard that there was some sort of drug angle to this whole story. And I'm not sure... We haven't been able to prove or disprove that. Julie and I continue to share notes on Larry and Claude Moulton. And just as I was putting the finishing touches on this episode, I happened to find a brief mention of Claude Moulton in a newspaper clipping from 1986. It reads as follows, quote, Claude A. Moulton, 24, of Bradford, pleaded no contest to a charge of disorderly conduct in Newbury, Vermont, on November 21st. The charge stems from a disturbance at P&H truck stop. This is the very truck stop that Mora would have likely gotten gas at that night in February of 2004. And while these events are separated by 18 years, it's still evidence that Claude was familiar with P&H truck stop and that he had been violent there before. Is it possible that Claude was eating dinner at P&H or filling up his truck? and saw a young, pretty woman pull in in her beat-up black Saturn? Is it possible he saw a victim of opportunity? Could Mora have been discarded near this truck stop or in the Connecticut River, which is only a thousand feet from the pump? I since forwarded this information to Julie Murray. She's looking into it. So what are we saying here? Are we looking at Larry or Claude for the Valley murders? In short, I'm not sure. So far, everything is pretty circumstantial. I ran all of this by Dr. John Philpin, the psychologist and criminal profiler who originally worked on these cases. Well, if there's two of them, then then we uh, are obligated to go back to your molten theory. Some of the information that you come up with has been so intriguing to me. Like the two brothers there with Mora. Next time on Dark Valley, this and a truly bizarre story about Larry Moulton from his own children. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari, and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781 or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.